my wife and I were drawn to you because we liked the idea of putting money down, qualifying, making sure we can cover the mortgage, you know, and have reserves. Like you were talking a language that was very appealing <laughs> based on what we had gone through before. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1307, 1307. Thanks for joining us today. We want to talk to you about a new Harvard study on cost-burdened senior households and what that means for us as investors. And then we've got a returning guest back on the show. That's Daniel Amaduri, who is actually saying you should not save for retirement, especially if you're a millennial. Blasphemy. Now, nah, maybe not. I don't know. We'll dive into that in a moment. And I've got Adam here with me for the intro portion of the show. Adam, did you tell everybody I was lost at sea? No, I said you were stuck at sea, which stuck was mostly sea. truthful. It was truthful. <laughs> you told me you couldn't land. And by the way, it's it's Harvard. It's a Harvard study. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, as part of our cruise last week, we stopped in Boston. We were near Harvard near Harvard Yard, where we could park the car. Oh, is Are everybody you... thinking, Jason, give up the impersonation? Thank goodness they're not listening to a podcast of a guy who actually lives in Boston. Yeah, or, right or, or makes his living based on impersonations. <laughs> hey, you're no, you're not going to make Saturday Night Live anytime soon. Yeah, well, that's okay with me. You know, Saturday Night Live, when I was a kid, I used to watch that show all the time. That was like the thing that kids did on Saturday night at 11 because we couldn't go out, you know, so we watched the show and it was hilarious, but it is so bad now. I mean, you know, it's been around for so long, but most of it's just junk. Ugh. Now we like, got it I back in my day. I can't watch it anymore. What, did you like it? Oh, I still do. I th it's still fun most of the time. It may yeah. not be perfect all the time, but it never was. Yeah, so. well. So did Facts. you did you get to run by the Saturday Night Live studios while you were up around New York? No, no, <laughs> didn't spend much time in New York. Whenever I go to or through New York, I actually kind of try not to spend much time there. I think New York is highly overrated and massively overpriced. But we started and ended our cruise in Brooklyn. And, you know, it was great to be there for just two days, basically. I just didn't want to stay longer. But the cruise was awesome. You know, we went to Boston and we went to Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, actually, that was our second Venture Alliance Mastermind trip to Newport, Rhode Island. And, and seeing those mansions, wow, Adam. The, uh, the you got to get that Airbnb, is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, but, well, <laughs> well, this is, uh, yeah, this is way beyond Airbnb. <laughs> you know, the mansions of the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and uh, the Carnegies and the Mellons and, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly quoting which, which industrialist. Uh, yeah, but those barons. types of people. Yeah, those types. But one of the great things we did, other than Newport, Rhode Island, after that, we went to Bar Harbor, Maine. And I did not know and had never been there before. Number one, how beautiful it was. And it was just a charming, charming, charming town. And that there were mansions there because I guess as Newport, Rhode Island became a big deal and all of these, the people did their summering in Newport, Rhode Island at their mansions there. They got out of the city, you know, if they were in New York or whatever. Newport, Rhode Island became a big deal. And then there was more flight I guess you could call it white flight, as the old expression goes, um, to Bar Harbor, Maine, because Newport was became like the rat race, <laughs> I guess. And I guess some of those people wanted out of that, and they went to Bar Harbor. So they had mansions there, too. So, yeah, pretty amazing stuff. And then we went to uh, St. John, New Brunswick. Uh, so we were in Canada. And my dog got to visit her 18th country, Canada there. How had Coco never been to Canada? I I know. It's weird. She's been to Europe, but never Canada. So, yeah. (laughs) So Coco and all the rest of the people on our Venture Alliance Mastermind cruise got off in Canada. We enjoyed that a little bit. Then we got back on the cruise ship and expected to dock in Halifax the next morning. And uh, the captain made an announcement as this nor'easter storm came in, that there were like 50 mile an hour winds and it was unsafe to bring the ship into port. Now, that's kind of interesting and it's a metaphor for life. Number one metaphor for your investing in real estate is the cruise ship, the amazing consistency of the cruise ship is truly incredible. You know, you go to bed, And that ship is not, it doesn't go fast, but it goes consistently. It's just always moving, you know, and that cumulative effect of that movement just gets you there. That's what happens with our real estate investments. You know, they don't go fast. They're not like an airplane, but they're just so consistent. They're always moving forward. They're always moving forward. And uh, surprisingly, in a few years, you've created some great wealth for yourself So that is one of the great things about income property. And hey, that's what we talk about on the show. But the other metaphor of the ship not being able to land in port because of the high winds, you know, you'd almost think that the ship would be safer in port, but it's not. It's the opposite. The ship is safer at sea, you know, because that's what it's built for. And as investors or as just as people in life, we're meant, number one, to move, to move our bodies, to move forward toward our goals for that next port, to move forward, not to stand still. And we are safer when we are moving, when we are going forward, when we are doing something with our life, with our investment portfolio. And some investors or would-be investors are crippled by this idea of, well, I don't know if I should buy that property. I don't know if I should take the risk. And it turns out, Adam, that the riskiest decision many, many times 
is not to act at all, not to do anything. Something is better than nothing. Yeah, doing something, just the wisdom of action, even if the action is not perfect or it is even a bad action, because at the very very worst, you're going to learn something from it. You're going to gain an education. There is wisdom in action alone. So don't be stuck in the port. Get out to sea and get moving and uh, create a life of abundance by uh, getting some good properties. So now, interestingly, this Harvard study, I think, kind of ties in with this idea too, this metaphor, because you look at the different demographic cohorts we're always talking about on the show of the millennials, the seniors, you know, the Gen Xers like me, and, you know, the millennials are Gen Y and now Gen Z coming up through the ranks. But the baby boomers and even older than baby boomers, they are burdened by some pretty high cost. And a lot of people that find themselves in financial trouble are mostly the ones who didn't get out of the port. They didn't go to sea. They didn't take action. They didn't start buying properties and building a portfolio, or they fell victim to the speculative whims of, to use another ship metaphor, waiting for their ship to come in. (laughs) Boy, I'll I'll get off this cruise ship metaphor (laughs) stuff. I promise. I promise. I promise. You got to give them some time to decompress from the, from the trip, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was, it was a great trip. I'm I'm really glad we did it. It was our first cruise trip and it was just a great time, but got to get out of that metaphor. But these are the people that didn't take action many times that didn't take the risk or they did the speculative thing. They gambled rather than doing the long-term, slow burn, simple, reliable thing. They wanted the instant gratification and that cost them. So there's kind of two sides of that spectrum. And let's look at number one, the amazing numbers of people in this demographic cohort. Adam, I mean, it's truly incredible, right? Within the next decade, 18 million adults in the U.S. will be in their 80s. This is the graying of America that we've talked about so many times on the show. Hugely significant, right? That's going past gray and into white hair in that regard. But yeah, the 18 million people are going to be in their 80s. And the thing that astounded me in this study is they said between 2016 and 2017, the number of cost-burdened households went up by 200,000 to a, a new high of almost 10 million people. And of those 10 million people, just around 5 million of them were severely burdened, which means they pay over half of their income for housing. Wow. That is, number one, tragic. It is very sad for these people. But I want to flip that to the side of the investor for a moment, okay? If you own a rental property that one of those 5 million severely burdened people live in, just think about that for a second, okay? They're spending half of their working life, half a year, half of every month, half of every week, half of every day, however you want to look at it, working for you. And you don't even have to employ them. If you are the owner that owns the property they rent, 50% of their life, their productive life is dedicated 
to paying you. Wow. I, I mean, what investment does that? You know, we look at the most successful company on earth, Apple Computer. Do you think people spend half of their income buying and paying for Apple products and services? No. The prices make <laughs> you try. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know you're not an Apple fan, but nothing else does this. Nothing else. No restaurant can say this. No cruise line can say it. No company on earth can say people spend half of their money paying us, yeah. buying our stuff. And you can retire from work, but you can't really retire from housing. That's the beautiful thing. And also, the thing that I was thinking about whenever I read this article is they talked about how with it becoming 18 million people in their 80s, the need for affordable, accessible housing and in-home supportive services is set to soar. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and I said a lot of these people are going to get pushed out of the homes they own into rentals just because the price of construction has gone up so much that if you have to modify your house for your living arrangement, they're just not going to be able to do it. You know, mm -hmm. the, the cost of the rehab is going to make them have to look elsewhere. Right. And a lot of them have, for example, two-story houses. And as they age, they really need to get into single-level facilities. So, yeah, there's, wow, the future of owning real estate is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, no matter what demographic cohort you have as your customer or will have as your customer, your tenant is your customer, your renter, you've got a phenomenal, a phenomenal thing. Yeah, and so, this is and this is an age range that just hasn't really existed much before, you know, as people start living longer. And so we're starting to see, you know, they've owned their homes longer than usual. And so eventually the homes that we've been waiting for essentially to come on the market, the area, the affordable housing potentially is eventually going to come on the market. But we're talking about people who will be moving out of these homes that can then hopefully be purchased by people like our local market specialists and converted into the uh, inventory that we're looking for as investors. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We're going to talk about quite a few things this week on the show. Adam, I, I know we're going to do some of it tomorrow and talk more about kind of some really interesting trends that are going on in the in the world of housing and inventory and the flow of people in and out of cities into rural areas and er versus urban areas and so forth. So uh, we'll get to that, but we've got to jump to our guest now. By the way, we've still got some Profits in Paradise registrations for this weekend coming in. Those of you who've registered late, I am sorry to say you will not have a name badge well, we'll give you a little temporary one, but it will not have your name on it because we had to order them last week. But we are looking forward to seeing you this Friday for the property tour and then this weekend for the conference that follows the tour. It's just going to be a great time. The event is almost full. We just expanded the seating chart. We had to kind of flip the room around to accommodate uh, more seats, but we do have room. So go to jasonhartman.com right on the front page. You can register for Profits in Paradise and the property tour this weekend. That's in Orlando. We'll look forward to seeing you there. And uh, that's jasonhartman.com. And Adam, you're ready to go to the guest? Let's do it. It's my pleasure to welcome back a returning guest, and that is Daniel Amaduri. He is co-founder of Future Money Trends newsletter and futuremoneytrends.com. With nearly 150,000 subscribers, he's also the best-selling author of Don't Save for Retirement, 
A Millennial's Guide to Financial Freedom. Daniel, welcome back. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on your show. You're coming to us from uh, my old uh, city I lived in for a year and a half, Las Vegas today, right? I sure am. I'm in a Las Vegas hotel. I did not know this, but I'm actually staying at the Delano, which is next to Mandalay, and it yesterday was the, the anniversary of the shooting. The anniversary, so, yeah, yeah, two year anniversary. I I was uh, there at the foundation room, and I actually filmed that shooting, that terrible, horrific event. I've never saw anything like that in my life. Now, granted, I saw it from far away, but I still have nightmares about it. It's just it's awful. It is horrible. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I tell you, there's you probably would agree with me on this, although we've never talked about it. There's a lot more to that story than the official version, I guarantee it. I don't know what the story is, but I know it's not the official version. I can tell you that. <laughs> I, I'm with you on everything you just said. It, I, I don't know what the truth is, but I sure as hell know that what they're telling us is not the truth. There, There is no way... This guy, and by the way, this is not the subject of this interview, but there, there's no way that guy, acting alone with zero motive, did that. That seems a lot more like a terrorist attack, because think about it, it was a Christian concert, okay? You know, that was just totally suppressed, and it was shocking. It took months and months for them to release footage of him moving all of that equipment, all of those guns, all of that ammunition in through the elevators and all of this stuff. And there was hardly any of that footage available. Could have been anything in those cases, right? That story just, there. I smell a rat everywhere you look in that story. Well, and there's a lot of eyewitness accounts that, that saw multiple shooters. They even have the police like uh, scanners. The, some of the police were worried about like a helicopter shooting guns you know so who knows what the real story is and why they covered it up and why they why they don't want the public knowing who knows maybe maybe it was tied to al-qaeda or something well i would certainly think it was tied to al-qaeda or isis or something like that because it makes sense that number one they'd attack a christian group and from just being there myself you know i cannot say this and i said this on the news i was interviewed a few times after the event I'm no expert, okay, that's my first disclaimer, but it did not sound like a single shooter. It did not sound like that to me. At first, I I was there with a friend of mine, you know, it sounded like a jackhammer at first. I didn't know what it was, you know. It certainly did not sound like a single shooter, but, you know, again, I'm, I'm not an expert, so... Anyway, let's get on with the subject here. Um, uh, so, don't save for retirement. Now, Daniel, isn't that contradicting age-old financial wisdom? Uh, you know, save for a rainy day, save for your future, be responsible, delay gratification for something bigger, for a bigger future, for a secure retirement. You're telling people not to save money, really? Well, it's not to not save money. It's just to not use the current cookie-cutter plan of retirement, which has failed. So, you know, this was a, people think of this as something that's always been, and they just don't even question it. They just start saving for retirement. And as if it's going to all work out perfectly, when the proof is out there now, the evidence is out there, it's failed for most people. Uh, Vanguard, which uh, has most of these accounts, the median 401k that's 65 and up 
only has about $55,000 in their account. And that's the median? That's the median, not average. That is being you know skewed a lot. That's just the middle number. And those are 65-year-olds, and that's not enough money. But boy, it gets a lot worse at the lower end of that spectrum, I'll tell you that. It sure does. We've all seen the polls out there and stuff where people are asked if they can even afford a $500 um, you know, expense last minute. It would crush them if it happened. So, I mean, I just look at everything that about retirement from the results of, you know, the baby boomers, let's face it, they had the best real estate market, best bond market, best stock market. And if it didn't work out for the baby boomers, which are really the first generation to fully em- embrace this idea, even though it, you know, you can source pensions back to the Romans, you can source like modern day pensions back to the late 1800s. But, you know, even this artificial number of 65, you know, this was 70 years old in Germany. And then a politician was running against somebody and said, hey, I'll lower it to 65. And it's just fascinating when you really look into retirement and then you kind of just step back and say, well, wait a minute, what do the rich do? What are the wealthy doing? And they're always focusing on preservation, which is that Warren Buffett number one rule. Number two, don't lose money. And they're focusing on income and cash flow, something that you're a huge advocate of and have been teaching thousands of people about making cash flow, buying things that make you money, that send a check to you. And that is what Don't Save for Retirement is about in the book. It's reconditioning your brain from hoping and praying that your 401k goes up and this idea of retirement all works out and reconditioning it and focusing on doing the practices of the wealthy buying income with discipline. Yeah, well, you know, if you save, the disclaimer for this title, obviously the title's, I'm sure, meant to grab attention. Look at the foundation of an individual and a society and a nation. You know, to build wealth, you must have capital formation. And Mm -hmm. the core of capital formation is saving, right? It's not spending all of your, your future, right? But You know, savers, sadly, and it's so unfairly, they get mistreated. You know, we've got now we're in an era of financial repression, right, which I'm sure you've Mm -hmm. talked about and written about extensively in in your work, where the savers, the people who've done the quote unquote right thing are getting punished because they can't get any yield on their savings without taking, you know, risk that they shouldn't be taking at their age. Uh, That's number one. And then number two, you know, inflation will eat them alive. And admittedly, I think inflation is fairly low now when you take out asset inflation. Mm, Asset inflation is extremely high. But, you know, if you just go for consumer price inflation, right, it's not that bad. Of course, it's much higher than the official numbers, but it's not terrible. Either way, though, it's just going to drain your wealth. It's a pickpocket, right? It really is. Inflation is, as you know, is is the worst tax of, of them all. And savers in the book, again, don't save for retirement is just don't save for conventional retirement. Certainly, I'm not saying don't save. I'm a big advocate of saving money. And you can deploy that capital to purchase more income or just to have the money sitting there and and to feel great. Sometimes uh, having a nice cash position is the peace of mind people are looking for. So when it comes to don't save for retirement, I just... I hate seeing people, you know, they get tied up in, in these 401ks or their financial advisor at Prime America and these people who, I mean, these people haven't even studied the financial markets longer than somebody has, you know, studied to cut hair. That's a very good point that you make, by the way. Uh, yes, it's there's more education involved in being a hairstylist than a financial advisor most of the time, and they're not following their own plan, or if they are, they certainly haven't become wealthy following their plan. 
right? It's hypocritical. You know, they're For recommending sure. stuff that they're either not doing or haven't become wealthy from. Well, and that's the the biggest profits in retirement are all these vehicles they're creating, whether it's target-dated funds, ETFs, indexes, 401ks, and all their baskets of fees. That's where the real money is in retirement. It isn't the actual guy who's saving for retirement or the individual retail investor. It's the retirement industry as a business. That's where the real money is in retirement. Yeah, well, there's a difference between the business and the doing, right? Yeah, so my point is, how is your broker investing his money? You know, you look at like anybody who is giving you financial advice, what are they really doing? Are they building a business? Are they telling everybody else to invest and trade stocks? But what they're really doing is actually building a business that teaches people how to do that. So I always try to look at what are what are the wealthy doing? And time and time again, it doesn't matter if you're looking at Mark Cuban or Kevin O'Leary or President Trump. If you look at their overall blueprint, it is unlike the middle class. It is unlike the poor. And Robert Kiyosaki talks about this, where the poor and the middle class, they have this urgency to get rich. So they're constantly speculating. And that's what everybody's investing in when they buy a 401k or they just throw money at a stock. They just become speculators. But if you look at what the wealthy are doing, they're not speculating. They're focused on certainty. You know, when Warren Buffett talks about not losing money, he's not saying you can avoid volatility. What he's saying is he's buying things that, look, I'll give you a great example. If you want to buy a stock, you, buy, you could buy Disney stock. Are you going to lose money? No. Is it going to protect you from volatility? No. There's plenty going to be plenty of volatility. So when I look at what the middle class has been completely conditioned into doing, which is speculating, versus the rich, which is cash flow and preservation, that's what I was really trying to teach people in Don't Save for Retirement. And by the way, the book starts out with my wife and I in a bankruptcy attorney's office. We had blown ourselves up in 2008. So this isn't like some story where I had crazy success. The first half of the book is how my wife and I had the, we did crazy things. We cut our budget. Uh, we did things that are considered fairly extreme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it reminds me of the famous story from a random walk down Wall Street where, you know, everybody's looking for the good deals and the market is efficient. And I mean, it's not perfectly efficient. Nothing is, but it's just by the index, right? <laughs> that's, that's how you'll reduce your volatility and create wealth over the time. But better yet, get into alternative investments like my favorite income property. But, you know, the story of the financial advisor, the stockbroker who takes his buddy down to the marina and says, hey, look at my beautiful new yacht. And that one over there is my friend's yacht. And that's my other friend's yacht. And, you know, these are all people I work with or my buddies that work at other firms, uh, brokerage firms. And then his friend that he's showing off to says, well, where are all the clients yachts? You know, <laughs> it's all the people, the insiders. It's an insider's game. And with alternative investments like income property, you are the insider. We can all be insiders because it's a direct investment and we're not letting some big brokerage firm skim all the money off the top, right? And, and not just brokerage firm, but the CEOs, the fund managers, the board of directors, you know, the ins, all the insiders, there's so many of them in so many directions, right? But that's really what it's all about. I'm looking at your table of contents and I, I want you to talk a little bit about chapter two, if you would, you know, what did we inherit? And when you look at the different demographic cohorts, each of them kind of inherited a different world, right? 
Sure. Um, so take whichever cohort you want. I mean, I yeah. know the book is for millennials, but could be, you know, really for anybody in, in many ways. You know, my message specifically to millennials, which I, I'm, I'm just barely made it in. I'm one of the first ones. But it is that this acceptance that somehow the millennials have it harder. Somehow that they're not going to ever make as much money or live the lives and be happy like their parents were or their grandparents. I think it's ridiculous. And I think millennials should embrace the freelance economy, embrace the mobility that all this technology has given us. You can start a business for $10 on GoDaddy. A lot of them are doing that. I mean, don't you think that's pretty widely accepted in the millennial uh, generation? It's accepted in the millennial generation. However, they keep comparing their lives to what the baby boomers had, but they're only comparing the negative. They're not truly appreciating all the great things that we have. They're just using them and then complaining that they don't have a pension and they don't have the 30-year career. And when they graduate college, they can't find a job. But in the meantime, you're right. A lot of millennials already have embraced that there is this whole new economy that's way better, that has people surfing during the day, jumping in their car, Ubering them around for Ubering people around for three hours, maybe having a, a night gig or doing freelance work from home. So a lot of the millennials are trying to duplicate what the baby boomers had, and it's not a goal worth pursuing if they would just open their eyes in some cases and truly see that, hey, forget about trying to have this nine to five job. Why are you chasing this nine to five gig? That's over. That's in the past. You don't have to be one company's employee for 30 years. You can have four or five clients as a freelancer. So that's really what I was kind of trying to, my message to millennials in this book was that, hey, forget about all this nonsense, how this generation has it so tough and they're living in their parents' basements, like really embrace what you have in front of you because we have a very good economy and a lot of opportunities to become entrepreneurs. It's better than ever. To do that, you've got to be disciplined. You've got to work hard. You've got to keep your promises. And um, that shouldn't be considered difficult, but it is for a lot of people, sadly. So you talk about that in, in you know chapter seven and eight too, but what about investing beyond Wall Street? Well, I would say what you're teaching people on the income properties is that is always kind of my first place I would I would tell people to go. The first thing you need to do is focus on trying to buy a rental property, and if you're in California or New York, this is the perfect place to, for you to be because you have all sorts of connections to buy properties out of state where they still cash flow. They're great assets. It's, they're in a great states, great country, great investments. And that's kind of the first stop. I tell people, go find a single family home because that will help you understand business as well. Because you can be a landlord and you can treat it like a slumlord or you can treat it like the Marriott. So the entire experience, and I do all this stuff with my children as well. When we buy a, a home, you know, it is running a business. So first of all, it's a great learning experience and it will actually provide you some real cash flow. You know, an ETF, as you know, anything on Wall Street, heck, if it's in a 401k, you can't even get it out or you have a 10% penalty. All these vehicles, they're not really geared towards making you money every month. Buying a single family home or even a private REIT or, or you know, investing in mortgage notes, there's so many different ways for cash flow outside of Wall Street. But the great thing is, is that's actually going to be a check that comes to your mailbox or like with my property managers, it gets um, direct deposit in my account. That's real money. It's not money that's Fugazi money that I can use when I'm 65 years old or seven years old. 
it's money that I can actually use to support my lifestyle now. Or if I'm smart and I'm young, grab that money and go buy some more houses and some more income. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good stuff. What else do you want people to know? You know, you you really have a lot of thoughts about the economy. And I just wanted to talk maybe before we close more generally, if we could, just thoughts about the economy, where things are going. And, you know, feel free to relate that to any of the, uh, you know, retirement issues and, and financial yeah. planning issues. First, for your listeners, if they go to futuremoneytrends.com slash save, they can read the introductory of the book and the first chapter free. And of course, there is a link to Amazon if they'd like to continue. And I would love for them to check that out. If they ever reach out to me, I'm, I'm always happy to reply to people. I love going over deals just like I'm sure you do. But, you know, on the general economy, I'd say this, and uh, this is probably the biggest thing on everybody's mind, is, is, is there going to be a stock market crash or a recession? And you cannot make these predictions and time these things. But one thing I can say is I've never read in history or experienced in my own life where a stock market crash happens when everybody's telling you a stock market crash is going to happen and when everybody is excited about it, the potential of a stock market crash and a recession. And, you know, I was just on marketwatch.com before that we did this interview and it's just like, what's worse, negative yields or, or the other option investors had was a 50% stock market crash. I'm like, really? There's an assumption. And anytime you see that, the opposite's going to happen. And I would bet because of the inverted yield curve, and negative rates, I would bet that it's essentially boom time for the next year. I suspect markets to reach crazy levels. That the Dow over thirty thousand, maybe thirty-five thousand, the exact opposite of what everybody's uh, expecting as far as a recession and a stock market crash. Hasn't this market? Isn't it a little long in the tooth by now? I mean, it's been going for a while, and uh, I'm sure it got extended by Trump's election. But you know, it can't go forever. They can't. But you know, the bond market is in its 38th year. So the stock market and the real estate market is only in its 10th. Is it a new bull market or is it an old bull market? It's really, it's hard to say. I mean, the bond market, it's been going since 81. So it's hard to say if it's long in the tooth. I do know this, that, you know, I was looking at some of these inverted yield curve uh, moments in, in time. And it is true that the last four or five uh, have had a recession after, but there have been many more. And there's actually a time period between 19 or excuse me 1879 and 1929 50 years we had an inverted yield curve on average uh, 70% of the time so because of the demand for capital and um, what's going on in the global economy with all the central banks easing i think it's very possible that we actually see a fairly good environment for the next at least 12 months yeah very interesting so past the election yeah i think he's going to be okay for uh, the economy and i'm not saying trump's going to get elected or, or or not elected but I don't think he's going to be dealing with a recession. Right. Well, yeah. Wow. So, so it'll can the the boom times will continue past the election. That was my question mark. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see which which way it goes. Um, because I think this trade war with China will most likely be settled up here in the next six months. A lot of people think it'll go past the election, but I have this weird feeling that China actually likes Trump because he's such a disruptor, and for better or for worse. And a lot of people, Trump people won't like hearing this, but I think China sees this as an opportunity for them to make new friendships and new allies with certainly some of the people that the United States is upsetting and disrupting in a lot of old relationships. So I think as a disruptor, uh, you know, it's like anything else, you know, uh, China's going to adapt to uh, whatever U.S. policy is and use it as their own tool. And I think um, with Trump, he's a great disruptor. I think he's doing a lot of good. 
But at the same point in time, I think for them, it might be an opportunity to uh, make some new friends as the U.S. leaves some new friends. China's already the number one trader with North Korea. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) and they're certainly not our friend or, you know, I don't know. I thought they were going in that direction for a while, but (laughs) apparently not. (laughs) Well, we we shall see. Well, Daniel, uh, thanks for joining us today. I believe you already gave out your website. Uh, So we appreciate that, and and good luck with the book. It's an important message that especially millennials need to hear. So good luck. Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.